Amen. <clears throat> Amen. Thank you, worship team, and thank you, CM workers. Let's show our appreciation to them as they head downstairs. Well, good morning again. If you have your Bible with you, we'd love for you to open it now to Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 to 34, Matthew 6. Uh, we've been taking a long, slow walk through the Sermon on the Mount, which, as we've said a few times now, and it's important to stress, is not a sermon about how to get saved. And uh, didn't we hear a wonderful, so many wonderful testimonies this morning just reminding us how we are saved, not by works, lest anyone should boast, but only because of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Can you say amen to that? Amen. All right. Well, if you did say amen to that, then this is a sermon for you. This is a sermon to and for the disciples of Jesus Christ. And it'll be important for us to remember that as we get into the passage. So hopefully you have that open now. I'll be reading from verse 25 through to verse 34. Hear now the word of the Lord. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like any one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which Today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven. Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things Will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, I'm sure you know uh, the topic of anxiety is a major topic of conversation in our culture right now. Uh, anxiety rates in our culture are rising rapidly, uh, fueled in, in some part, by the long stress event that we just endured known as COVID-19. A recent StatsCan report released in September of 2021, so that's pretty much right in the middle of COVID, September 2021, indicated that one in four, that's 25% of Canadians aged 18 and older, screened positive for symptoms of depression, anxiety, or post-traumatic stress disorder in spring 2021 up from one in five in fall of 2020. Isn't that interesting? So obviously this is it's an important topic. And this is a, a huge topic of conversation within our culture. But it'll actually be helpful for us to not approach this conversation in Matthew 5, in, or in Matthew 6, entirely through the lens of that conversation. Meaning the conversation in our culture is a much broader conversation. Some of the terms are being used a little bit differently. There's a fair bit of overlap, but we need to be careful this morning, just because this is, this is sort of the 800-pound gorilla in the room. 
we need to take our time and make sure that we're not hearing Jesus saying things that he's, he's not saying. want to slow down and make sure that we're hearing what Jesus is saying and, and what he's not saying. So I want to take a, a bit of a deliberate approach this morning in recognition of that little disturbance, perhaps, or that influence in terms of how we're approaching the text. So we'll spend some time making sure that we understand the text before we get to that place where we begin to speak about application. In terms of understanding the text, the first thing that we need to be careful to observe here is how our text fits into the flow and overall argument of the Sermon on the Mount as a whole. Uh, Hopefully you still have your Bible open. Most sermons make more sense with your Bible open. This is certainly one of them. Uh, If you have your Bible open, you'll be able to notice the first word in the text that we just read. And what is it? Therefore, that's good. We're a little more interactive this morning. That's good. Maybe you've been helping out at VBS, right? That's good. I may call on that. That's good. The first word in the text that we just read is the word therefore. And and what did your teacher, hopefully in school, tell you you're supposed to do anytime you see the word therefore? You're supposed to go back and see what it is there for, right? The word therefore in English conversation is a connective particle. It's a way of saying that these two parts of the conversation are related somehow. Meaning what we're reading today relates in in some way to the passage that we were looking at for the last couple of weeks. That conversation, you recall, was about money. In those passages, remember Jesus said you cannot serve both God and money, right? Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where rust and or rust and moth destroy, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Remember that? There Jesus was talking about money. He said money is a good tool, but a bad God. You don't want money as your God. You want God as your God. And so Jesus was telling his followers in that section of the Sermon on the Mount that it is wrong for them to worship money. He didn't say it's wrong for them to have money. They're going to need some money. But he said it's wrong for them to worship money. Well, here in a related sense. Remember, these paragraphs are connected. Here he's saying, in the same way that it's wrong for his followers to worship money, it is also wrong for them to worry about money. Two sides of the same coin. And that takes us to the matter of limitations. Jesus is not, it's important for us to understand, he's not addressing all forms of anxiety. He is speaking in a very focused and delimited way. You probably noticed that if you read carefully or heard carefully the opening verse. Look again at what it says. This is verse 25. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about what? About your life, what you will eat or what you will drink or what you will put on. So Jesus is talking very narrowly here about anxiety with respect to financial necessities. Things like food and drink and clothing. So again, the discussion here is far narrower than we might be inclined to think. To be clear, Jesus is not saying that all forms of anxiety are sinful. In fact, to be perfectly honest with you, some forms of anxiety are natural and normal, and in fact, it would be worrying if you didn't have that type of anxiety. D.A. Carson, for example, says, there is a sense in which worry is not only good, but its absence is, biblically speaking, irresponsible, right? Worry is, uh, it's an internal response to an external change of circumstances. It's, it's part of actually how you protect yourself, how you navigate safely in the world. 
Uh, if, if a bird, all of a sudden, if you're uh, riding your bike or walking down the street and a bird all of a sudden starts flying towards your face, you, you have, an, have an instinct to respond to that. You might not even think of what you're doing. You just do it instinctively. There's, this, there, there's a sense in which the body prepares you to respond very rapidly with a quick shot of adrenaline, right? That's That's good. It's fine. And, and listen, there are things in this world that, that should make your pupils dilate and should cause the hair to stand up on the back of your head. That's not a bad thing. Listen, I'm, I'm a parent. I'm trying to raise five kids in this incredibly confusing and corrupt culture. And I'll tell you, I, I, have, I have some appropriate, what I think is appropriate anxiety about that. Uh, there are some things in this culture that make my eyes open a little wider, that, that, that make the hair stand up on the back of my head as I try to help my children navigate through these many pitfalls and and snares. The amount of confusion and and temptation and misinformation out there is so much greater than than what we were facing 20, 30, 40 years ago. And so I would say that represents a reasonable cause for some anxiety. In fact, I'd argue if you aren't worried, if you're like, hey, kids, go on downstairs and watch YouTube for 12 hours, uh, right, while I have a nap upstairs. If you're not at all concerned with what's going on down there, there's something wrong with you, I would say. Right? You should have your parenting license revoked. These are difficult times. So, so some anxiety is, is appropriate. Now, I'm, I'm not panicking. We're not, we're not moving to the North Pole, but I'm praying more, and I'm more vigilant and aware than ever before. And I, and I think that's appropriate. I think you could say, make a good argument that it's appropriate for us to be anxious right now about the state of the global church. I think it's entirely possible that should the Lord tarry, you know, 100 years from now, 200 years from now, 500 years from now, historians are going to be looking back and writing about this era as the greatest apostasy in Christian history. Areas of the world that were previously Christian strongholds and that had been for hundreds and hundreds of years are now seeing people fall away left, right, and center. What's going on? Parts of the church that even just five, ten years ago we thought were, were strong parts and healthy churches have been exposed as, as being nothing but rot inside. We, we are going through one of the most severe prunings, as I said, in, in Christian history. Now, long-term, long-term, The prospects of the church are fantastic. Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So long term, things are going to be great. But in the short term, uh, looks like we're heading into a season of severe cutting, severe pruning, severe upheaval. I think that's an appropriate cause for some anxiety. I know it's not a sin because the Apostle Paul said, in addition to all my other troubles, he said, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Do you see that? My anxiety for all the churches. Nothing wrong with, you know, the Apostle Paul understood where he was at in the story. He was uh, hanging wallpaper, as it were. He was the plumb line. If you've ever hung wallpaper, I watched my parents hang wallpaper, and I decided I was going to paint. It looks pretty stressful is all I'm saying, right? If you don't get that first uh, strip of wallpaper right, then your whole house is going to be tilted. You've got to spend your whole life like this. You got to get that first strip just so, don't you? Well, that was the Apostle Paul's ministry. He, he understood that, that he's got to get it exactly right. Any mistakes we make now in the foundational generation, we're going to be paying for for the rest of our lives, right? And, and wow, talk about headwinds, talk about challenges, talk about difficulties. 
And so, yeah, he says, hey, listen, every day I was weighted down with anxiety for the churches. So, again, just to state the obvious, I think there are some things we ought to be anxious about. This passage isn't talking about those things. Jesus says very narrowly, very specifically, listen, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. All right, so the passage is focused very narrowly on anxiety about financial necessities. And again, it'll be helpful for us to remember that this teaching is addressed to a particular audience. The Sermon on the Mount was a sermon that Jesus preached to his disciples, that is, to followers, not, not, to, not to the crowds. In fact, you remember at the start of the Sermon on the Mount, it says that Jesus and the disciples withdrew from the crowds. So this is teaching very, very specifically targeted at followers. I think it's important for us to see that. It would have been almost cruel, almost cruel, if Jesus had just said this to people in general within the Roman Empire. Because I think if you were just some random poor person in the Roman Empire, there'd be some reasons for you to be anxious, some legitimate reasons for you to be anxious. There were no social programs for the poor in the Roman Empire, and there was no impulse or motivation towards mercy within the Roman worldview, within the Roman system of pagan, uh, paganism. So I think, I think if you were a random poor person in the Roman Empire, you'd have good reason to be anxious. But Jesus isn't speaking to those folks. He's speaking to his followers. He's speaking, actually, to the foundation of the Christian church. And he is saying to them, you have no need to be worried about this stuff. Now, why in the world would he say that? Well, for one thing, the believer knows that God created the world that this world is not an accident. I wonder sometimes, I'll be perfectly honest with you, I wonder how secular materialists get out of bed in the morning. Right, if you think that the universe is just a, a, a cosmic accident, that we're just like, the whoa, look at those amino acids coming together in a, in, in a swampy swamp, and then, whoa, somebody's playing music over there, and wow, we're just hurtling through the, and then it's all gonna explode at some point. How do you get out of bed? Like, that's terrifying. You should, you should be anxious. You should be down in your basement rocking back and forth, sucking your thumb. Goodness gracious. But, but that's not who we are, right? Our Bible, but you don't have to be even that good of a Christian. You don't have to have read that much of the Bible to figure out that this world is not an accident. In the, our Bible opens with the, with the words that should calm you right down. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Okay, then. And then if you keep reading that narrative of the creation, don't you see how carefully God provides for everything that he then creates? Oh, and so we've got, we've got food for the animals, and we've got this, that, and the other thing. And you get the impression that God very carefully designed the world to provide for life. And specifically, particularly, most significantly, for human life. So it's not an accident. We've got a creator up there. Then secondly... The believer knows that not only do we have a creator, but we have, the creator is our father who loves us. Did you notice how Jesus referred to God as father in this passage about anxiety? That wasn't an accident. By the way, that was the whole point of the little flower illustration. Remember, uh, Jesus says, why are you worried? Don't you know that, that, your, that your father looks after all of his creations? And, and he's, got, he's got a plan going for the flowers. And he says, if God loves the flowers enough to have a plan for them, 
flowers that are here today and gone tomorrow, how much more must he have a plan for you? Right? Relax. God, God loves us. And then, of course, in addition to all of that, the believer knows that God has given us the church. And the church takes care of its own. There were resources that a Christian person had in those days that the average citizen of the Roman Empire did not have. We talked about that last week. In Acts chapter 4, when there was a huge influx of poor people who were moving to Jerusalem to be part of the, the church, other folks were selling their properties in order to provide for these uh, folks' basic needs. And this wasn't just characteristic of the church in the first generation. This was characteristic of the church throughout the centuries. In fact, it was one of the main reasons why Christianity eventually took over the Roman Empire. Historian Rodney Stark says this. He says, because theirs, he's speaking about Christians, so because Christian uh, churches were communities of mercy and self-help, Christians did have longer and better lives. Did you know that? Their survival rate in the two great Roman plagues was significantly higher than it was for pagans, for whom there was, again, no motivation towards mercy in their worldview or religious system. So because their Theirs were communities of mercy and self-help. Christians did have longer and better lives. This was apparent and must have been extremely appealing. Indeed, the impact of Christian mercy was so evident that in the fourth century, when the emperor Julian attempted to restore paganism, he exhorted the pagan priesthood to compete with the Christian charities. In a letter to the high priest of Galatia, Julian urged the distribution of grain and wine to the poor, noting that the impious Galileans, that was slang for Christians, in addition to their own, support ours, our poor. And it is shameful that our poor should be wanting our aid. Isn't that interesting? Wouldn't it be, can you imagine living at that time? We take for granted so much of of what we think is just sort of the background air. We think, well, everybody, everybody has an impulse towards mercy to the poor. It's like, no, they don't. And do you know that prior to Christianity, that was actually considered unhelpful? Roman paganism said, the the religion of the world before Christianity said that, that actually it's not wise to be merciful to the poor. They're probably poor for a reason. All you'll do is dilute the gene pool. All you'll do is weaken the nation. By the way, Where have you heard that before in 20th century history? Only Christianity said, oh no, love the weak, care for everybody, support the vulnerable, especially the widows and the orphans. Only Christianity talked like that. And it was so attractive. It was so compelling that all of a sudden the government leaders are saying, we gotta pick up our game to compete with the churches. Isn't that amazing? Bottom line is this, friends. It wasn't for nothing that Jesus said to the believer, you don't need to worry about your financial necessities. You have a good God. You have a good world. You have a good church. And that prepares us to state the main principle being set forward in the passage. Jesus is saying here essentially the same thing that he said in verses 19 to 24. Remember, there's a word therefore, which says, see these things together. So we expect it to say more or less the same thing. Two sides of the same coin. He is saying that we must be singular in our loyalty, allegiance, and focus in life. We cannot worship money, and neither can we be distracted with obsessive worry about money. To do either of those things is actually to give money too much place, too much space, and too much weight in your life. So don't do that. This section, like the one that comes before it in the Sermon on the Mount, 
is all about priority and perspective. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says here, what our Lord is warning against us, or is warning us against, therefore, is the danger of thus being distracted from the main objective in life by care, by this anxiety about earthly, worldly things, by looking so much at them that we do not look at God. That's what the text is about. Again, Jesus makes the same point here by means of the illustration uh, that he made in the, in the previous passage with the illustration of the eye being like the window of the house. You remember that? It makes a little more sense in the KJV there where Jesus says, if therefore, therefore thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. But if thine eye be evil, thy whole body shall be full of darkness. Jesus is saying, you're, if, house, you gotta have the windows pointed towards the sun. If the windows rotate between the sun and the alley, then your house, your life is gonna be filled with darkness and shadow. He's saying it's very important that we aim at one thing and one thing only in life. You gotta have one thing as your main objective, as your driving ambition, one thing and one thing only. If you sometimes serve God, but sometimes serve money. If you sometimes worship God, but you sometimes worship money, your life is gonna be filled with shadow. You get the same basic punchline here at the end of this section that you got at the end of the first section You see that in verse 33. Jesus puts it this way here. He says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. See that? Put the big rock in first. That's what Jesus is saying. Put the big rock in first and let everything else find its proper place around that. That's the principle. That's what Jesus is teaching to his disciples in the text. So how do we apply that? We've talked many times about how the Sermon on the Mount is like a tuning fork, right? It, it, It... it tells us what it's supposed to sound like, what the Christian life is supposed to sound like, not always what it does sound like. We're usually out of tune. And so we're supposed to hear the Sermon on the Mount and we're supposed to say, oh yes, that's right. That's how to do it. That's how I should sound. That's how my life should be organized. And now we make progress. We make change against that standard. Here it's telling us that the the followers of Jesus do not worship money, neither do they worry about money. They are not characterized by excessive anxiety about financial necessities. So how do we get there? How can we bring ourselves into alignment with this text? With the time that we have left, let me suggest to you just the following actions and commitments, a couple things. Number one, develop the habit of thanksgiving and prayer. As I said before, anxiety is simply uh, an internal reaction to a change in our external circumstances. If a tiger uh, fell through the roof, which, you know, could happen. I don't know. Maybe I haven't been up there in the roof in years. But if there were, I've, I've had a raccoon fall through the roof. That's mildly anxiety-producing. But if, 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 if a tiger fell through the, the roof there and landed in the middle of, of the aisle, I imagine that several of us would feel some anxiety. Right? And, and that's, that's not sinful. That's an appropriate uh, response to an external situation. That's our body uh, preparing us to either fight or flight. Uh, It would be interesting to see how several of you would respond. Some of you would try to punch the tiger. Some of you would run screaming in the other direction. Uh, And those would be instinctive responses uh, as a result of your body preparing you in that way. There's nothing wrong with that. The, The issue isn't whether you feel anxiety towards a change in your external circumstances. The issue is how you process it. The Apostle Peter didn't deny the reality of anxiety. He said, cast all your anxiety. He didn't say deny the existence of or pretend that you don't have. He said, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. 
Sounds like Peter heard this part of the Sermon on the Mount. The Apostle Paul said something similar. In Philippians 4, 6, he says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Now, of course, this is the same Apostle Paul who said that he is daily weighted down with anxiety for the churches. So he's not saying, I don't feel anxiety. He's saying, I don't want to be overcome by anxiety. Anytime I feel it, I'm going to process it by taking it to the Lord in prayer, by presenting my requests and my thanksgivings to God. There's a sense in which anxiety is like all other temptations. Uh, Martin Luther has a great line. Martin Luther has a lot of great lines, but one of his best lines is he said, you know, you can't keep the birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from making a nest in your hair, right? And the idea being that we're going to feel temptations. It's not a sin to feel a temptation. If a, if a beautiful person walks by and you, you notice that, that's not a sin. But if you linger and you look and you follow, okay, well, now we got all kinds of sins. So it is with anxiety. You can feel a flutter in your heart. Do you ever feel a flutter in your heart when you get a report on the market or the price of gas? Right? Well, it's not a sin to feel that. That's just you being human. The the issue is how do you process that? What do you do with that? Do you stew on that? Right? Do you, do, you, do, you keep, do you keep scrolling and, and hearing more and more and more reasons why we might be heading into a time of stagnation or recession? Right? How many times do you have to hear that? Funny thing is, if you hear it enough times, it'll become a self-fulfilling prophecy. Right? So what do you do? You, you take it to the Lord in prayer. Remember we used to sing that? I won't sing it now, but take it to the Lord in prayer. Man, that was good counsel. So that's what we do. We, we pray. We pray the fourth petition of the Lord's Prayer. Give us this day our daily bread, our necessities. And remember when you pray that you're praying to your heavenly Father. He loves you. He loves you. Jesus makes that point in the next chapter, chapter 7. He says, or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father who's in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Even earthly dads, right? I mean, we do our, as fallen as we are, as sinful as we are, as complicated as we are, generally speaking, we want to give good things to our kids. We want to give them food. We want to give them meat. We want to provide for their needs. So if that's true for us, how much more should we expect that to be true of our heavenly Father? So when we pray, if we're followers of Jesus Christ, we're praying to a father who loves us and who wants us to have good and wise things, wants to provide for us in good and wise ways. And knowing that ought to dramatically reduce our anxiety. Our God is a good God. He knows us, he loves us, and he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. So we can lower the anxiety, we can calm down and trust him to do what is right. And of course, we need to remember to thank him as well, develop the habit of thankfulness Paul puts those together in Philippians 4, 6. Why is that? Because as we remember to thank God, we're reminded of what he's done for us in the past, and that makes it all the more likely that we'll be able to trust him for the things that we need in the future. You know, if we don't teach our kids gratitude, you understand we're setting them up for anxiety. And I know it, it feels like you're beating a dead horse. I, I insist that my kids say thank you when we do stuff for them. And uh, like... I won't single out any of the kids, but I'll, I'll say, like, did you say thank you for that? Yes, Dad. I did not hear it. And then call up from downstairs. Yes, Dad. <laughs> Good. 
You see, now it's not pedantic. It's not like I need that. It's not like I need that for my own self-confidence. I want our kids to understand that because if they don't develop the habit of gratitude, you're setting them up for anxiety. They need to remember, you know, there's a lot of people in the world that love me and take care of me. You know what? I've never missed a meal. You know what? God is good. And that reduces the anxiety with respect to what comes tomorrow. The habit of prayer and thanksgiving should dramatically reduce the level of anxiety with respect to financial needs. Second thing that you can do to make progress against the standard being said in the passage here, is to commit to hard work and making the most of every opportunity. In the Bible, miracles are never given as a replacement for normal human industry, effort, and action. We see that most clearly in the story of the manna. You remember the story of the manna in the Old Testament? Uh, While the Jews were moving from Egypt to the Promised Land, while they were in the desert, they didn't have fields, they didn't have industry, uh, they needed food. And God miraculously provided them with bread from heaven. That's what manna was. But then there's a very interesting verse we don't often cover in this story. Joshua 5.12 says, And the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land. And there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. As soon as they could feed themselves, they were required to feed themselves. Miracles are not given to replace hard work and effort. We talked about that last week. The Bible says, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. The faith of the Bible assumes that you are working hard to support yourself and your family. So if you aren't working hard, then you should be anxious about your financial necessities. God is not going to give you a miracle in place of the effort he requires you to put out yourself. When you go to God in prayer, you want to make sure that you've positioned yourself to receive And part of how you position yourself to receive is by obeying him and doing the things he's told you to do. And that's how you position yourself to receive a blessing and a miracle, right? What Jesus says is that we should be like the birds when it comes to our financial necessities. He says, look at at the birds. They work hard, but they're not stressed out. The early bird knows that if he wakes up early enough and is okay getting his nose dirty, he's going to get a worm. Be like the bird, Jesus says. Work hard, but don't stress out. The Lord has given us a good planet. He loves us. There's food, drink, and clothing out there for those who are willing to work. And in case you should run into an exception to that general rule, and of course there are exceptions in life, the third thing you can do to reduce your anxiety around financial necessities would be to plant yourself in a healthy local church. The Bible acknowledges that sometimes people are going to work hard. They're going to do everything they should do, and still they're not going to have enough resources to take care of themselves. Proverbs 13, 23 says, The fallow ground of the poor would yield much food, but it is swept away through injustice. Isn't that interesting? So saying, you know what? If if conditions, all things being equal, the, the, the land would provide enough for this family, but through injustice. Maybe somebody stole it. Maybe there's some funny business. Who knows? As a result, they can't care for their family. Sometimes circumstances or injustice keep us from experiencing the reward for our toil. And so what about that? What about that? The anxious brother or sister might ask. Well, in such circumstances, be very thankful for the safety and the support of a healthy local church. The consistent vision, Old Testament and New, was for there to be no poverty within the covenant community. Did you know that? In Deuteronomy 15.4, Moses laid it out. He said, if you do this, if you do this, if you obey what God is telling you to do, if you do these things, 
There will be no poor among you. That's what he says. Deuteronomy 15, 4. There'll be no poor among you. For the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. Now, of course, you know the story, right? The Old Testament people didn't obey God. They didn't give what they should. They didn't uh, trust him like they should. They didn't treat people like they should. There are all kinds of stories in the Old Testament about people stealing land from the poor and joining field to field and making these giant estates. And so there was poverty. This vision was never realized until the personal work of Christ. But then by his grace and through the gift of his Holy Spirit, we begin to see the realization of this promise. We get a snapshot of that in the New Testament. We've talked about it a few times now. When a bunch of poor people moved to Jerusalem, because Jerusalem was the only church in the world at this time, the Bible says there was not a needy person among them. Do you think that phrase is an accident? Every Bible-reading person understood exactly what was being said there. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. That's the vision realized. When the church is functioning the way it should, following Jesus, filled with the Holy Spirit, there's not a needy person among us. The church takes care of her own. She always has, and the true church always will. I won't use any names, but I can tell you, this happens here all the time. You don't know about it because confidentiality is important, but it happens here all the time. Just this past week, we cut a check to a person who had suffered a workplace injury and had some short-term financial obligations that they weren't able to meet. Not, it was not a long-term situation. Still had a job, still working hard. Short-term situation. And we were happy to meet that need. And again, I won't ask for a show of hands, but there are an awful lot of people in this room who have benefited from that generosity, from the generosity of this church. And that's exactly how it is supposed to be. Now listen, we're not going to buy you a motorcycle or a ski boat, all right? But if, but if you get laid off or you experience a workplace injury and you're a member of this church, you don't need to be anxious about your financial necessities. You're not going to be sleeping out on the street. Your kids aren't going to miss a meal. We got you. So do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat and what you will drink nor about your body, what you will put on. We got you covered. He's got you covered. Thanks be to God. And that leads us to our landing place. There's no need to be stressed about your financial necessities, brothers and sisters. Rather, seek first the kingdom of God. I love what Spurgeon says here. He says, seek God first, and the rest will follow in due course. As for all these things, you will not need to seek them. They will be thrown in as a matter of course. That's the point. That's it exactly. Nobody is saying that these things don't matter. Of course they do. Jesus says, your father knows that you need them. I'm not saying they don't matter. We're saying you don't need to be anxious. You don't need to stress about them. Of course they matter. We're just saying if you pursue them, if you worship them, if you worry them, if you're always chasing after them, you're not going to find those things and you're going to miss out on God. But if you would just seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, which means seek to live a life that honors him, that obeys him. If you do that, if you seek him and you do the things that he's told you to do, which include working hard, which include connecting in a local church, then guess what? You get God and all these 
things beside. So worship the Lord. Worry about the Lord. Serve him, obey him, seek his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this fantastic counsel. Lord, how timely it is. Lord, this is an issue. And it's not wrong for us to be nervous as we see gas prices rising, as we see grocery prices rising, as home prices rise. Lord, it's not, it's not wrong for us to be aware of that. It's not wrong for us to think about that or notice that. But it is wrong, Lord, for us to become consumed with worry about those things, as if you weren't a good God, as if this wasn't a good world, as if you hadn't given us a good church. Lord, we are going to need each other, though, more in the days to come. We can't afford to be two out of three on any of these things moving forward, lest we be consumed with anxiety, lest we be distracted and taken out of our mission. Lord, so help us to be fully and entirely obedient to 